Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today, I have Dr. Bernard Gilly. He's the CEO and co-founder of, uh, let's see if I can pronounce this right, Lumavoke, I hope. And the website is genesite-biologics.com. Exactly. And the product is Lumavoke, which we'll talk about. So, Dr. Julie, thank you for coming. Uh, tell me about your, your company and the product, please. So uh, just uh, as a very brief presentation, the company was, was founded in Paris, in France, back in 2012. And the goal is to develop gene therapy treatment for blinding retinal diseases and eventually to go beyond this to CNS disorders. And uh, we're doing this because of our two... Uh, technology platforms that we're using together with Gene Therapy. The first one is a technology that allows for the first time ever to uh, address uh, mitochondrial diseases. And this technology, which we call MTS, is part of our first and most advanced product called Lumevoc, which is uh, indicated in the treatment of a blinding diseases, which is quite cruel and, and brutal. It's called Leber hereditary optic neuropathy. This, and I'll come to, to this uh, momentarily. The second product uses a, a completely different technology called optogenetics. And optogenetics is a technology that uh, has been used at the bench by neurobiologists for many years now, uh, which consists of uh, introducing a gene that encodes for light-sensitive protein. And then when you shed light onto the transformed cells, that creates an action potential and then you can understand how, for instance, neurons are exchanging information or treating information. Quick question here. First of all, the conditions you spoke of, can you just re-mention what the conditions are and how they affect people? So Leber hereditary optic neuropathy is, is in fact a disease that started by an average the age of 15 to 35 years, so late teens to young adults. They will start noticing that they lose vision in one eye and in a matter of a few days to a few weeks, they will lose sight in the first eye and 
a few months after, they will lose sight in the second eye. And there is no treatment. And within the first 12 months after the onset of vision, 99% of all these patients are blind. And as That's you can horrible. imagine, that, yeah, absolutely. That has consequences for for these individuals, of course, but also their surrounding, their families, their works. And, and there is no treatment at the moment. There is no, absolutely no treatment. And they remain blind for the rest of their life. So what we, what we are doing with Lumevoc, and we have now demonstrated this through two pivotal trials, is that when we use our product, we inject one time, and that's the merit of gene therapy. It's only one injection that lasts for many years. We can in, indeed restore their visual acuity and we make those patients gain about 30 letters of visual acuity. So 30 letters would mean between five to six lines. And those lines are, you know, those big lines that you can see on the charter at your ophthalmologist. So most of them, in fact, all of them would not even see the largest one, the biggest one. And after the treatment, like about 18 months after the treatment, they are all able to see those big letters. And most of them are able to see five lines below those. If you compare it to uh, 2020 vision, or if you compare it to how they previously saw, how are they close to where they were? Or are so, they still impaired, just not as much? Unfortunately, they, not all of them will be close to where they are. Where they were before. It exists. And you, if you go on our website, there are some replays of patients that were treated under expanded access IND in the U.S., where you can see that one is playing against basketball, another one is driving. So, so that, that is indeed happening. But in most of the case, at least the patient is back to fully independence. So he can move, he can eventually, of course, go outside, uh, recognize faces, and, uh, and many of them are able to uh, draw letters on the, on the board and, uh, and so be, be really back to uh, almost a normal life. And what kind of retinopathy is this called? What's the name of the condition again? So the name is Leber Hereditary Optic Neuropathy. It's a disease that accounts every year in the, in the U.S. There are probably 400 to 500 new cases, and it's about 600 to 700 in Europe. It exists all over the world. So it's probably every year there is uh, probably six to 7,000 of those patients who are losing sight each year on, on the planet. For this condition in particular, why does it happen only at uh, ages 15 to 35? Why not when they're born? What changes in them? It's a very good question. So, and in part, the response to your question is that it is not completely known, but the most important assumption and the most relevant assumption is due to the fact that it is a gene, we're talking about a gene that sits in the, in the mitochondria. So mitochondria, mitochondria are, as you know, small organelles that are in all our cells, and their role is, in fact, to provide energy to the cell. So they are, in short, they are the, the powerhouse of the cells. And they have their own genome. So in each cell, we have genes in the nucleus of the cells, which is the, the genes we are always talking about. But there are a number of mitochondrial genes that sit in the mitochondria. And we are not all having the same population of mitochondria. We used to have different population of mitochondria. And that is called heteroplasmy. And so depending on the percentage of each of population of mitochondria at birth, some patients may get the disease and some will not. Although they bear the mutation, they will not get the disease. So this is inherited through the maternal line, Absolutely. I guess, because of the mitochondria DNA. Absolutely. So what's, you know, I know some of it's proprietary, but what's the mechanism by which this, this accomplishes the gene therapy? 
So it's very simple, and I I can eventually send you some some slide and some schemes to uh, illustrate this. So in fact, normally the mitochondrions to uh, to produce the energy that the cell needs is using its own genetic machinery. When one of these genes is impaired, of course, it cannot produce enough energy, or it cannot produce energy at all. So, and it's very difficult to uh, put any gene inside the mitochondrion because it's uh, first, it's a very thick membrane. Second, there are hundreds of mitochondrion per, in each cell. And finally, it's also true to say that their, their turnover of mitochondrion is very rapid. Their lifetime is about 48, 72 hours. So it would be useless to do so. So what we are doing is that we use a trick that is proprietary to, to GeneSight where we put the gene, the mitochondrion gene, we put it into the nucleus of the cell instead of the trying to, to insert it into the mitochondrion. And we put this gene into the nucleus with two uh, flanking sequences of oligonucleotides. And those two sequences are very important because once the messenger RNA is produced by the nucleus, then the messenger RNA gets outside of the nucleus. And then the first of these sequence uh, is going to actively transport the messenger RNA to the surface of the mitochondrion where, in fact, it binds to a, a ribonucleotide complex where the protein will be, in fact, expressed. The messenger RNA will be tr- translated on the surface of the mitochondria. And then the second sequence allows the active transportation, we call this translocation, of the protein through the outside of the, of the mitochondria into the matrix of the mitochondria where the protein is being used for the uh, production of uh, of energy. And when we do this, in fact, the gene will continue to sit in the nucleus. So we don't really care about whether the, the mitochondria continues to bear the mutation or whether there are more and more of these mitochondria that bears the mutation, because they will find the missing element in the perinuclear space, and they will be able to get the protein to produce the energy. So that's working very well. And we now have, uh, from our first patients in the very first trial, we have uh, north of six years of follow-up where we still see uh, the effect of treatment. We, obviously, we cannot sample the retina of the patients to measure, but we continue to see the improvement of visual activity. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. How do you make sure it gets into the right cells and not all cells? A very good question. So, in fact, the, the cells that are impaired in uh, retinite, in hereditary um, optic neuropathy are the uh, cells that sit on the surface of the retina. They are called retinal ganglion cells. And they are the cells that, in fact, form the optic nerve. Their, their axons are gathering to form the optic nerve. And these cells are the closest to the vitreous. So we just inject into the vitreous of the patients. It's a very simple administration. It's a few seconds. And then the vector will get into the proximate layer, which are the retinal ganglion cell, and it transfers gene into those cells. And 
we have a fairly very good yield of transfection. We, we can regularly achieve, and that was measured in monkeys, obviously not in humans, but in monkeys, we can regularly achieve 35 to 40% of transfection of the retinal ganglion cells. But again, how do you make sure it doesn't spread to other cells? Do you administer it locally or yeah, do you not need to? It just travels to the right spot. No, in fact, so intravitreal administration is cool for, for, for this because, uh, as you know, the eye is, in fact, a closed system. It's a, it's a ball with, uh, with the sclera around. And so there's very little shedding, if any. And what we have checked in monkeys is that we, we don't find much of the, of the material outside of the eye. We do find some in the, in the first days, but very limited in amount and uh, nothing after a few days. Um, what other retinal conditions? So you work with Lieber's hereditary hereditary uh, retinopathy, I guess. What are the other conditions that you work with? So with this mitochondrial technology, we we now start uh, looking at additional mitochondrial disease. There is one which is called the dominant optic atrophy. It's also a disease of the mitochondrion. It's also a disease of the uh, optic nerve of the ganglion cells, but it's a different gene. So we're starting to work on this. And in the meantime, we also are pushing our second product, which is based on the second technology called optogenetic. And here, what we want to treat is completely different disease. We are willing to treat diseases that are linked to the loss, to the degeneration of the photoreceptor. So photoreceptors are those neurons that sit really in the back of our retina, and their role is unique. They are, in fact, detecting light, and they're transforming light into an electric signal. And then this electric signal is being sent through the retina to the retinal ganglion cells, which we were speaking before. And then the retinal ganglion cells, because they are forming the optic nerve, they will, they will in turn send the signal to the brain. So once the photoreceptor degenerates, then sooner or later, the patient will turn blind. And there are two very large populations of patients who are turning blind because of degeneration of photoreceptor. One is a disease of aging that we all know, it's called, ret- uh, it's called macular degeneration. And in, in the in late stage of macular degeneration, patients that are above 70 or mostly above 75, but still in good shape, then they, they will lose their central vision. They have this big scotoma, uh, the, this loss of large uh, area of photoreceptor in their central vision. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That makes them unable to read, unable to recognize faces, of course, unable to drive, unable to look at the at the video or at the film or at the TV. It's a very uh, uh, cumbersome issue and it's called geographic atrophy. And this is only a disease that is linked to photoreceptor degeneration. In fact, the rest of the retinal cells remains alive and functional. The only thing is that the first step does not happen. And there's another group which, are made, which is made of patients who are younger, start by the age of 18 to 20. It's all genetic diseases linked to very many different mutations, and it's called retinitis pigmentosa. And these patients, although they start losing sight at the periphery of their vision by the age of 18 to 20, it continues to degenerate when they are 30 all the way to their 40, 45. And by 40 or 45, they are blind because they're left with no photoreceptors alive. But also in retinitis pigmentosa, the rest of the retina remains alive and functional. So the ganglion cells, the retinal ganglion cells of those retinitis pigmentosa patients remains alive. So the idea we have here is to, in fact, transfer the photoreceptor function into the retinal ganglion cells. And to do this, we use this technology called optogenetic and we transfer a gene that encodes for a light-sensitive protein 
into the retinal ganglion cells. And then when it's expressed by the retinal ganglion cells, you only have to use a pair of goggles that in fact use the right uh, wavelengths of light to stimulate those cells and they will in turn uh, transfer the signal to the brain. And we very recently, that's a paper published in Nature last week, we recently show that uh, the first patient treated was indeed able to recover partially sight. So this was a, a blind patient who was uh, who is now, uh, I think he's in the 65, 70. He lost his sight by the age of 40 or 45. And he was completely blind, not even only able to distinguish uh, night and day. The rest is unable to, to see. And we turn it into uh, a capacity to detect object, to, uh, to see the, uh, the, the lines on, on the street when he's crossing the street, to count object, and he's now improving every day with the, uh, with the rehabilitation program. And we have, we have another nine patients that are going to be treated. We, the, the trial was unfortunately uh, delayed because of the COVID uh, situation. We patients could not access to the hospital in Pittsburgh, in London, and in Paris. So, so that has been delayed. But this first patient was able to do it, and that's a, that's a remarkable world first, by the way. And although it's certainly a proof of concept, this is really very, very encouraging to, uh, for us to move okay. forward. Yeah, do all these conditions affect the mitochondria, or what, what do all no. these conditions have in common besides it affects your eyesight? Anything? No, no. Only so, so either you have a mitochondrial disease or you have a disease li- linked to something else. For instance, macular degeneration is in fact a disease of aging. Some people are are seeing are having their retinal cells aging in a pathological way. But the cause of this abnormal aging of the photoreceptors is not very well known. Okay, but there's no other uh, apparent ties. So, in, in macular degeneration, I guess that's the one that affects the most people, right? The, yeah. the lever is, you know, inherited one is rare, but how many people get affected by macular degeneration each year so in the world? It, it's a very large number. It's uh, it's probably, uh, I think the last uh, the last stats I've I've looked at uh, uh, mentioned, I think it was uh, 4 million in the US each and uh, and 6 million in, in Europe. But when you look only at the geographic atrophy, which is this uh, late stage, I would say macular degeneration, then we're talking about roughly... 400,000 new patients, Europe plus US each year. It is pretty substantial. And, and it's important to treat them quite rapidly because as, as we said, they are all above their 70 or 75. So even they still have 10 or 15 years of, of, of life, it's better to treat them as early as possible to, uh, to give them the, the, the longest time with, with the capacity to see. So in, in I guess I'll call it MD, why do the cells die preferentially where they die? Has anyone been able to figure out? Is it lack of blood supply? And maybe there's fine capillaries that you yeah. know, become clogged, or what's the reason? Again, it's it's really not very well known. As as many uh, neuronal degeneration like Parkinson or, or Alzheimer, the root cause of the degeneration is not very well known. I suspect that's my reading is that this is linked to uh, to really aging of those neurons, and because of the genetic background, because of the life that people have had in the past, uh, whether they have drink, whether they they wear uh, sunglasses, whether they were in a, in an aggressive environment or not, so all sort of things, then their photoreceptor will degenerate uh, early and and would lead to blindness. But again, I don't think there would be one single root cause of macular degeneration. Then the translation of this, as you put it, is indeed that. Uh, there might be some 
neovascularization, so new blood vessels that are being formed under the retina, and they are complexifying the situation. So they are, for instance, when you are bleeding under the retina, it creates an anoxic condition, and that's really put pressure and, and arm the, the, the photoreceptors more, but, but that's a, a kind of a secondary issue. A therapy, have you developed a therapy for MD yet? And if so, is it easier to administer because it's so localized? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so there are some palliative treatment of macular degeneration that exist. And as you know, this is, these are anti-VGF treatment for the wet form, the neovascular form of macular degeneration. But that's really an early form of macular degeneration. So people are treated with anti-VGF like Lucentis or Isla, but that does not prevent the disease to progress. That helps them for a few years, but the disease continues to progress. And indeed, when they turn 70 or 75, a very large fraction of them will develop a, a geographic atrophy. So do you have a therapy to help these people or not yet? You're just, uh, it's on your radar. We, we, we are developing this with uh, our product GS30, but uh, there's no other therapy existing at the moment. Oh, are you able to say what the method is or the hypothesis is you're using? If it's proprietary, I understand, but... What I describe, uh, Chad, we, uh, we're using this optogenetic technology where we transfer a gene that encodes for light-sensitive molecule protein in the retinal ganglion cells because in those patients suffering from macular degeneration, the retinal ganglion cell layers do not degenerate. So we introduce this gene into those retinal ganglion cells, and then we have developed goggles, which is a medical device that transforms the outside visual information into... Uh, the very same information, pixel by pixel, but only using the wavelengths of light to which the protein is sensitive. And that, that works very well. Has anyone been able to, let's say, I don't know, can you culture some of the outer retinal cells and then uh, inject them back into the middle to yeah, see if they have, take shape or take form? Yeah, we, we don't do this, but there have been several attempts to do this. Uh, and um, the um, there's a lot of controversy about those results. I think the... A fair summary is to say that, yes, when you put some stem cell into the retina, those stem cells, depending on where they end up, will develop into a retinal neuron. So either a, a bipolar cell or, or an interneuron or even a ganglion cell. But the issue is the reconnection of this new form, this newly formed neuron with the rest of the circuitry. And to my knowledge, no one has demonstrated that those new newly formed neurons are able to uh, transfer any information. Well, if you look at the tissue of uh, someone that has MD, is there fibrosis? Like, What does the tissue look like in the middle? Yeah, in the middle, there's, uh, there's fibrosis. There are just cell debris, uh, blood, uh, some, some clots, and, and essentially, uh, yes, uh, fibrocytes that are invading the space. How does the optogenetic process work? Can you talk about some of the elements that go into it? So we don't care about the photoreceptors. They have degenerated, so they are not there anymore. But what we are targeting is the retinal ganglion cells that are those cells that sit on the surface of the retina whose axons are forming the optic nerve. And we, in fact, transfer the gene encoding for a light-sensitive protein into those retinal ganglion cells. And then when the protein is expressed by those retinal ganglion cells, we shed light and that will turn them to create an action potential, so a signal which is exactly very similar to the signal they used to receive from the photoreceptor before. And then they will send the information to the brain. So the genes that are being taken into the cells, they're, they're photoactive to certain wavelengths of light. Exactly. And therefore, exactly. you can what activate them or 
Like when you when you impulse them with light, what happens to them? What do they do? So the gene when they are in the nucleus, the gene encode for a protein. The protein gets into the membrane of the cells, and it is a protein that we can photoactivate. And when we shed light onto this protein, then we cause them to change status, and they will in fact uh, create an action potential. They will either depolarize, depending on the protein, they will either depolarize or hyperpolarize the cell. But that, in any case, will create an electric uh, current, an action potential, that will then be sent to the to the brain. So very much like the the photoreceptors. So how far along are you with this technology? When when do you anticipate you might uh, be able to have it for commercial use, or is it it's just so, unknown? So we have put this in in human trial now, and uh, we uh, we had a first uh, uh, paper in Nature Medicine last week that shows that this blind patient is able to uh, see again, to uh, count elements on the table, to uh, a number of things that are just confirming that this technology works well to restore vision. And that will lead to patients being at least fully independent, probably more, probably able to uh, to recognize faces, maybe to uh, to read at least large letters, signs in the street, for instance. This may sound crazy, but I don't know. Has anyone worked on an eye transplant? Is that even remotely possible? And what would be the yeah? There's been quite some some attempt, uh, but that was uh, many years ago. In fact, the the issue is the reconnection of the optic nerve. So in itself, grafting an eye is is almost a, a nice and maybe genius idea. But the problem is that you need to reconnect the circuitry of the new eye, of the grafted eye, with the optic nerve of the patients. And that's very, very difficult. Until now, it's never been proved to be doable. Is, is there just, what are there, just millions and millions of connections? Or it would just take forever, even if you could do it? Or? Because, in, in fact, the, the axons will tend to, uh, to, to reconnect, but they will not reconnect in the right order. So after a few time, they, everything is mixed up. Then there is some information that uh, gets at to the level of the... Uh, of the connection, and it's all it's all spoiled after after a few hours. That has been attempted in in rats, in dogs, in monkeys. I think there have probably been some trial in human, probably uh, in the uh, early 60s or 70s. But now people have dropped this completely until someone finds a way to nicely and uh, and robustly reconnect the circuitry. Yeah, it's just, I guess the fundamental question in what you do is it's, it's just strange that these conditions happen at different points during a person's life, yet there's a genetic alteration that, that improves them. It's just, it's weird. Why, why is the person okay for five, 10, 15, sometimes even 40 years? What changes? Well, you know, it's uh, no difference as uh, why is, uh, is someone uh, getting into Parkinson's disease by the age of 60 or 65 or 55? Why this? This is really the aging process. Some of us, I mean, we're not equal in front of aging. Some of, some of us would age nicely. There's no issues. Some would not. And that's really a function of the, I think, a number of elements. Again, genetic background, environment, lifestyle, you, you name it. Yeah, I guess if you can solve aging, then you can solve this. But uh, those are huge, huge issues. So, well, the work you're doing is, I mean, it's amazing. If you can uh, help people that lost their sight see again, I mean, that's phenomenal. So what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Uh, I think they can go on our website, www.genesight-biologics.com. 
and um, they're all set. All the publication, all the papers are are available. And and as I said, there there's a number of uh, of replay of uh, of how much we are restoring sight in patients. Very good. So GenSight, to the website again. All right, GenSight-Biologics.com. Okay. Well, Dr. Gilly, thank you for coming, and uh, the work you're doing is is great. So I thank appreciate you, very you much, being Kat. here. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.